0: to the gospel of John this morning, John chapter 4, as we enter into the story where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. That video just reminds us the truth of John 3:16 that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word today. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to open open up your word, to teach us by it, to change us by it, that we would thirst for you, that we would long for you. And Lord Jesus, that we would find our satisfaction in you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Beginning in John chapter 4, verse 4, this is what he writes. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's pause there and ask for God's blessing on his word. Lord, do open your word to us. Teach us by it. Change us by it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. The actor Hugh Jackman, who's known for his lead roles and Uh, X-Men, as well as Les Mis, and more recently from The Greatest Showman, where he played P.T. Barnum, talks about, talked about in an interview, deep wounds that he has in his life, deep wounds that still drive his life, things that he still yearns for and thirsts for even years later. When he was eight years old, his mother walked out on him, his father, and his three older brothers three older siblings, rather, and completely abandoned them. When Jackman finally realized that his mother was gone for good, he says that he was, he was too terrified to go into his house alone. In an interview, he said, I was, I was terrified because I was the first one home every day. And I used to walk home from school and wait outside, and I just would not go in. His father, Christopher, some maybe in an effort to compensate for the pain, worked many long hours as an accountant. Jackman said, My father could only come to one school sports game a year because he had five kids, and on Saturday he had to shop. If my father was there, it would be 50% greater. Having his approval is something that still drives me. He then goes on to describe how his life is he still has ongoing struggles with fear and with anxiety, and with people-pleasing. And though his ambition to be a star has quieted down a little bit, maybe because he is one, um, it hasn't disappeared completely. And he said, I saw a play in Sydney, Australia, and in the notes they had this quote from Bono that said, What kind of hole exists in the heart of a person when they need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to feel fulfilled. But there is a part of me that wants to please, he says, to be all things to all people. Indeed, what Jackman identifies as this deep thirst, that there is a part of each one of us that thirsts for a deep soul satisfaction. You know, for some of us, it comes in a a quenching for the fears that we have in our lives. Something to satisfy the loneliness or the hurt from our past. Someone to say, maybe not so much that you want fame, but at least someone to say, you know what, you're worthwhile, and your life matters, and I notice you, and you count. And we turn to this passage of Scripture, and Jesus gives living water. And the water that he gives, it is, it is shocking, and it quenches our deepest desires, and all we have to do is ask for it. Look at how this develops in this passage. Jesus shocks us. He shocks, in particular, our relationships when he enters in. Verse 4 to 9 tell us that Jesus, a woman from Samaria, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it? That you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This may be a little bit like in, a, in our day and age. You've got a, a squirrely, insecure high school freshman boy. And he is asked to homecoming by the most beautiful senior girl. And he says, how is it? That you, this beautiful, popular senior girl, is asking me, a freshman, to homecoming. Or maybe a few years older. Maybe if you, it turns into this. That someone says, how is it that you, an uh, 06 or an 07, wants to eat with me? Wants to ask advice from me an E1. How is that? It's shocking, would it not be? And so this passage here, there are several things that are shocking for Jesus' interaction with this woman that shocks our relationships. First off, she is a Samaritan. The map shows us here Samaria was a region north of Jerusalem. What you have here is you have the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Jordan River on the east side of Jerusalem ending down in the Dead Sea. And Samaria was this region in the middle of Israel. And the Samaritans were disliked by both the Jews and also by the non-Jews. The reason for that was 700 years before, the king of Assyria came through and he conquered Israel. And when he conquered Israel, what he did was he, um, he conquered Israel, and he brought foreigners in to intermarry with the residents who were there. And so they did indeed intermarry. As they intermarried, and they developed their own mixed religion, and so the Samaritans had their own version of the books of Moses. They had their own temple, which was sent up as an alternative to the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own version of Israelite history and what happened. And as a result, both the Samaritans, or the Jews and the non-Jews, both hated the Samaritans. The Jews hated them because they weren't fully Jewish. And the non-Jews hated them was because they were part Jewish. And what what the text tells us here is the other issue about her being a Samaritan. It meant that she was unclean. Verse 9 says this, For the Jews have, she's amazed for the Jews because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus comes to her and he talks to her at this well. The well, what would happen is that she drew water and gave it to him from her vessel. Not only would her vessel be contaminated... But anyone who drank water out of the vessel that she touched and that she used would also be contaminated. It's a little bit like if you know that someone has the flu, they've got a fever of 103 and they've been coughing and hacking, and they drink out of a cup and you say, give me a drink, and they say, sure, and they pass it to you. You would say, and jump back. Why? Because you would be defiled. That was the experience that the Jews had, that if a Samaritan gave them something, they themselves would be contaminated. But Jesus has a pattern of turning that which is unclean and clean. The second strike against her was that she was a woman. And as a woman, she lived in a society where Jewish men, indeed, had this systemic chauvinism. And the Jewish the Jews taught that it was a waste of time for a woman to learn the Scriptures. But Jesus isn't bound by the chauvinism of his day, nor is he bound by the chauvinism of our day. So she's got two strikes against her, and then ultimately she has a third one with her immorality as laid out in verse 17. Jesus identifies with her and says, "'You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband's husband, which you indeed said is true.'" And this suddenly gives an understanding of this passage. This woman has come to the well, and she goes to a well that is over three-quarters of a mile away from her home village. There were other wells that were closer, and in fact, archaeology has shown that. But she goes to the one that is far away, alone. She goes by herself. Typically, women would go together. And would go together, and they would go together, not in the heat of the day as she is doing, but they would go together in the early morning or at the end of the day when it was much cooler. And here is this woman, as Jesus identifies, who is living in serial marriages, currently living with a man who was not her husband, which would have been a violation of both the Jewish moral code and also the Samaritan moral code, as something that is completely unacceptable in a person who is immoral and someone who is defiled. But just last week, we saw in John chapter 3, as Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, this teacher of the law. And he says to him that God so loved the world that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here, John gives us a first example of whoever, the most unlikely of candidates. And what we see is Jesus breaks down artificial barriers. He breaks down inhumane barriers, and ultimately, he will break down the greatest barrier of sin itself through his death on the cross, and when the tomb opens, he will conquer the barrier of death itself. The encouragement here is that it does not matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your background, your family, your upbringing, your education level, nor does it matter what you have done. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how bad you are, doesn't matter how much you have succeeded. Jesus comes and he shocks our relationships. Some of you here, many of you here maybe, have heard this many times. It is still good news. It is still good news. And it continues to, and it should continue to affect our relationships as a church community. The Samaritan woman here lived in a she lived in an ethnic centered community, tribal family-based community, traditional culture. Who she was in society depended upon who her parents were, what tribe she was a part of, what group she was connected with, and how successful they were. And how much wealth they currently had, and so it was connected with based upon her position. But in our society today, when we look at people, when we assess people, the first question that comes to our mind is not who's your daddy, right? We're not trying to rank people based upon their family, their family position. We live in a meritocracy is that we live in a society, we live in a world that evaluates people based upon how, how much they've achieved, how well they're doing. And so what happens is that what we do when we encounter somebody is that we look at people and we assess them and we measure them up. We measure them up based upon the clothes that they wear, based upon how they present themselves. We measure them and evaluate them based upon how, how articulate they are in their speech, We look at them and we assess them based upon their fitness. Very soon we find out their job to understand the position that they have in society. And if we're honest, we determine our friendships based upon how useful we think this other person is going to be to us. But as Christians, we throw out those boundaries and distinctions. And when you walk through the doors of this church you absolutely must throw out those distinctions and boundaries in the way that we relate to each other as a church family. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no Samaritan woman and Jewish male. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no military or civilian. There is no officer or enlisted. There is no old or young. There is no, oh, they're a family with children. Oh, they don't have children. There is no black or white. There is no rich or poor. There is no white collar or blue collar. Our relationships with one another must be lived counter to our culture. They must be lived counter to the way that our world, that you live and breathe every day when you walk outside of this door, defines and says the way that your relationships should be. And let me challenge you that if these differences, this meritocracy, this way that we use to assess each other, the way that that we sometimes use to position ourselves in our relationships, if these differences still mean something to you, friend, you're denying the gospel. And you're denying the one who gave his life for you. Because Jesus comes and he shocks our relationships. And he shocks the boundaries and the basis on which we relate to one another. See a little bit more when you see how Jesus enters into relationship with this woman. And what he does is he enters into her, with her, and he begins to enter into the depth of the thirst that she has in her, lives, in her life. Here's what happens. Jesus comes to her, and he says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would, have, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus draws a upon a very common image, water and thirst. Certainly, we have all been thirsty. But I would venture to guess we have not been thirsty like the people in that day were thirsty. We don't live in a dry and arid climate. For us, um, death by thirst is pretty unheard of. You know, that someone was you know trying to get to church and they didn't make it just because they were too thirsty and they just rolled over and died. We that, that's that's unheard of in, in our society. And in fact, our struggle is that we have we have excessive amounts of water, right? I mean, we even hear of people who die because they drink too much water and they've lost all their electrolytes. And in fact, we have aisles in the grocery store of water and different varieties of water, and that's all available to you if you didn't like the water that is pumped into your house 24-7. For them, this excessiveness of water, this excess of water, was not true for them. Water was part of the daily fight for survival. And you can understand that when you consider our bodies. Our bodies are made up of 60, over the, what, 65% water? You're told that you know you can live three day, three weeks without food, three days without water, just by breathing and sweating you lose over a liter and a half of water per day. And if you're a person who is dying of thirst, what happens is that every every ounce and fiber of your being cries out for water. Your tongue swells in your mouth. Your throat becomes burning and scratching. And your tongue moves around to to ease the pain, but there is no water, so it just sticks to the different portions of your mouth and sticks to the different portions of your throat. And as you can progress to die from thirst, what happens then is that your cells lose water and they begin to shrink. And your cells all over your body shrink, and indeed the cells in your brain shrink. And they can shrink so much that your brain itself reduces size and pulls away from the lining. At that point, there's headaches and delusions and all kinds of other things that are going on. So it is into this image of thirst that Jesus begins to interact with this woman. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But this woman like the highly educated Nicodemus from we saw last week, he doesn't get, she doesn't get Jesus' point in exactly what he's saying. So she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Currently today the well is over 100 feet deep. It was probably more so back then. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Not. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and as did his livestock. She's still not understanding what's going on. So Jesus engages with her, and he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty Or have to come here to draw water. I'm just a housewife. I'd love indoor plumbing. I'd love not to make make this trip. So she's not beginning, she's not seeing, or maybe she's dodging, the deep thirst that she has. So Jesus begins to enter in further and expose to her the depth of her thirst. He says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Conversation over. Right? Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Conversation over. There's nothing more to talk about. But Jesus knows that's not the case. And he says to her, gently exposing her, You are right to say in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. A little uncomfortable. So she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about theology. Let's talk about the finer points. Let's talk about some other things between Jews and Samaritans. We We don't really need to talk about this. But as Jesus talks to her, the conversation goes from water, living water, to, hey, let's talk about your sex life. And these things are not unrelated. What Jesus is doing is he is gently exposing to her her deep thirst. And the deep thirst and how she has been trying to get that satisfied. You look at her condition. Was she she a serial adulteress? Or was she a victim of thoughtless men's passions and divorces? Was she a seductress? Or was she the one who was the, the reject and the refuse of other people's desires? Was she used or a user? Or both. And so Jesus begins to identify with her that she has this deep thirst, that she has been looking for, for love or security or, or to be desirable or at least to have somebody say, you're, you're worthwhile. You, you matter. And it's too uncomfortable. So she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk, let's talk about something else. Jesus exposes that she has been thirsting for satisfaction in men, and she will thirst again. Is that the water that she has been drinking, that she thought would satisfy her, not only doesn't satisfy, but it's salt water. It makes her salt thirsty and even more thirsty than she was before. There is a heart thirst that well water or man water cannot quench. Friends, for what do you thirst? For some of you, you hear this story and you say, that's me. That's the story of my life. And that's what I have done. For others of you, this woman's story is just an image of one expression of other people's thirst. It's a thirst for significance. Maybe it's a thirst for, you know what, I don't, I don't want significance, I don't want success, I just want to, I just want to be quiet. I just want people to, to leave me alone and not, not bug me. For some of you, it's a, it's a thirst for success. Maybe that's in your career, or maybe it's in your parenting. And the way that that's going to be determined for you is how well your kids do when they grow up that you can brag about and talk about. Or it's a a thirst to be accepted by at least a certain group of people. And maybe they're not the most popular group of people. But at least there's somebody who says you're wanted and you're here and you're noticed. All of it is salt water. You will thirst again. And like this Samaritan woman, there are some areas of our lives that we would rather dodge, deflect, and not address. She is alone at this moment. She is isolated because of her sin, because of choices that she made or choices that were made for her. But notice that it is in her isolation and because of her isolation that she can encounter Jesus Christ, who is the living water. It is at this moment of greatest shame at this moment of greatest embarrassment, that she can encounter and hear and come to know the one who is the living water. It is true that the areas in our life that we are most afraid of, that we are most ashamed of, that we are most embarrassed by, it's the areas where we most need Jesus And it's the areas where we are also the most ready to meet Jesus. Because it's an area of our life that we say, yeah, I have drunk deeply of a broken cistern. I have drunk deeply of other waters, and I am all the more thirsty. You see, what Jesus gives is that he gives more than water. Notice his description of this. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's not giving just a drink, but the water that he gives is something that dwells inside, something that starts bubbling, and it doesn't stop bubbling, and it doesn't stop bubbling, and it becomes a spring of water. And it keeps on bubbling. You don't build a house on a spring, right? Because it doesn't stop. And no matter what you do, you can jam all kinds of junk in there. You can fill it with rocks. You can jam all kinds of, of layers. You can pile it up on top of stuff. You can pour gravel. You can pour concrete in there. But what happens? It keeps bubbling. If the spring just oozes up. The spring just, the spring just seeps out. What Jesus is saying is, as much as your body may thirst in an arid and dry land, as much as your body needs water, as much as your cells need hydration, as much as every fiber of your being needs and craves water, I am the one who gives you what every fiber of your soul needs To live, I am the one who quenches your deep thirst, your deepest thirst, your soul, what your soul longs for. And I'm not just giving you something that's nice to have. If you don't have me, if you don't have the living water that I give you, do you know what's going to happen to every ounce and fiber of your being? It's going to shrivel up and you'll be dead. He's saying, I give. Soul satisfaction. I'm the one who gives a soul, your soul acceptance and peace. I'm the one who gives your soul comfort and rest in the fact that I'm the one that's in control and, and, and I'm the one who gives you your soul significance. And it does not matter how much junk is piled up on top of that spring. It doesn't matter how much trash you have shoved down that hole. When there is living water inside of you, it continues to bubble up and there is absolutely nothing that can stop it. And he offers this living water to anyone who would just ask for it. And You don't even have to have a great ask. It can be a bad ask. Look at this woman. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. I mean, her theology is messed up. Her belief in Jesus is messed up. I mean, like everything about her ask here is messed up, except for the fact that she knows that Jesus is the answer. Except for the fact that she knows that Jesus is the one, is the one that she seeks. And even though she doesn't fully understand it, she actually does in a really feeble and stumbling way, and that's all that matters. She does what Jesus says, for in verse 10, he said, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. All you have to do is ask. And he would have given you living water. You just have to ask. sometimes people say, I I wish I had faith. I wish I had faith like you. I wish I I could believe. But here's the thing. You don't don't have to create faith. You You just transfer it. You don't have to create thirst. You have it. And all you have to do is transfer from the water that doesn't satisfy from the salt water that you have been drinking that will make you thirsty again, all you have to do is transfer from drinking that water to drinking the living water, which truly satisfies. You are thirsting for something right now. There is something, there is some place in your life where you are drinking deeply, where you stick your whole head in the bucket of it. And you are just chugging it down. And it's a broken cistern. And you will thirst again. And what Jesus is saying is stop thirsting after the things of this life. Stop thirsting after all of these things to quench the deep soul satisfaction that you desire. And thirst for God and thirst for Jesus Christ. And do you know why he is the one that can give us living water? It's because he was the one who became thirsty for us. He became thirsty for us. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, knowing that his time was finished, he said, I thirst. I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it out to his mouth. And when he had received the sour wine, he says, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up, his, gave up his spirit. Does sour wine satisfy? Does it satisfy that type of thirst? No. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy. It didn't satisfy his thirst because there's nothing in this world that can satisfy the thirst that he was undergoing at this minute. Indeed, in Psalm 22, the psalm, which is a messianic psalm, a psalm looks forward to the work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus did in verse 14 and 15. The psalm was foretold. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. That's like a shattered pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of the earth, face down, licking the dust, because that has more water than what's in your body. And it was at this moment of great thirst that Jesus Christ cries out for it to be quenched. And he cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you want to know what the answer was? It was was silence. That when he sought God to quench the deep thirst, his request was denied. And his request was denied so that you And so that I, so that we, would never thirst again. So that within us, that we would stop pursuing after salt water in our life and so many other regions, and that we would turn to him who was the source of living water. And that we would be filled and that this living water would come through us and begin to bubble up within us and rise up within us. And once it starts bubbling, it would never stop. And through his death and his resurrection, he offers us this living water, this spring that wells up to eternal life that overflows in us and overflows, therefore, to other people. And all you have to do is ask. Be shocked that Jesus would offer you living water and thirst only for Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are what we seek. You are what we long for. Father, we don't always know what we long for. Sometimes we think that what we long for is a better job or the change in our circumstances. We think that what's going to make us happy and give us significance and peace and and joy and something that says that our life really counts and that, hey, we did a good job, is going to come through, through our merit. Either our merit in our home, our merit because our friends accept us, our merit in our job, but Lord, all of these things are salt water. All of these things make us thirst again. And Lord, you are the one who gave us a thirst, who made us to thirst, to thirst for you. So, Lord, may we drink deeply, may we seek you, and may we celebrate that in Christ, in him, you send your spirit to, to implant this fount of living water that wells up into eternal life. And so, Lord, may that life fill us, may it overflow all the junk that we cram in its way, and may we drink deeply and celebrate that you, Lord, not only have not let us, left us alone, but you meet us in our moments of loneliness. So that we would find you and drink from you deeply, Lord, may we do that by your grace and by your Spirit that we would overflow with living water. In Jesus' name, Amen. Worship team is going to lead us in the song.